Fake corrupted press are in a time of emergency, let's say. They're crying, they are sad. The reason as to why is because this new medium of technology, this new wave of media, which is characterized by one-to-one -one connection with the audience, with the individuals, is characterized through open dialogue, debate, and discussion. It's not technologically restricted. It doesn't get funding from corrupted people and billionaires such as Bill Gates. It doesn't have a skewed motive, at least in the case of this channel. This is the new era of media, which we can now find the truth through open dialogue, debate, and discussion. Nobody's going to stop us. This is a new wave of media. You're part of the journey. Get on board. This is the search for truth. And the corrupted fake news, they're very, very sad. The media is not here to tell you the truth. The media is not here anymore. To find the real events in which are occurring throughout the society, the media is not here anymore to be impartial, to be able to change their mind. Imagine if CNN just came on one day and said, sorry, we changed our mind. We're so wrong. It wouldn't happen. This is what I'm saying. Media, conventional legacy media is restricted. It's dead. It's going. It's dying. But be warned, just as the 15th century church, in which they clung on to tyrannical-like power after their power was taken away in light of societal developments, there are major analogies, there are major comparisons in which we can make for the current date, namely the fact that technology is changing. It's changing the dynamics of how we receive and gain information. A medium, medium such as this, podcasts, raw discussions, they're going to disrupt the very fabric of these conventional media companies. But as I stated, just as the 15th century church in which they clung on to tyrannical power, the same is going to occur with the mainstream media today. This is not going to be an easy fight, but we need to speak the truth. We need to have this open dialogue, debate and discussion. Whatever happened to the media that used to hold people to account, whatever happened to the media, in which used to ask hard questions, whatever happened to the media, whom used to portray hard truths, whatever happened to the media, the investigation journalists, those whom really were responsible for exposing the corruption within elite circles, whatever happened to this? It just feels like, and I believe many people sympathize with this view, the mainstream media is not going to provide you with the truth. There seems to be some sort of alternative motive behind the scenes ongoing in which the trust with the mainstream media is just at an all-time low. And you can't blame them. I mean, you can't blame the individuals who have lost trust with the mainstream media. They lied about a rack. Most of them didn't present proper information. They didn't give you the truth when it came to climate change, when it came to CO2. They didn't give you a nuanced understanding. The BBC, who claims to be impartial, they fail. Still to this day, despite their impartiality narrative, they fail to, to, to really expose their audience towards the alternative sides of the debate. And this is the biggest tell that there's something fishy going on within the case of the BBC on climate change. There are always alternative opinions, debates, discussions. But when you just hear one narrative, namely a catastrophization narrative, namely a narrative of crises, that is when you should be suspicious. There is not one narrative for any topic in the history of the universe. There are multiple different debates and discussions, opinions, views, so on and so forth. So this new era of media means that you can be exposed to a range of differing views. You can inform yourself. You can reach alternative viewpoints in which you previously have never been exposed to. This is the future, so be hopeful. Good things are coming. Be happy. We're going to make society great again, media great again, and we're going to destroy the corrupted fake news, which is funded by Bill Gates, billionaires, and fails to provide an impartial or nuanced or truthful reporting to the forefront. And that is what we're going to try to do. This is what Eric Weinstein states. He, he mentions this when he met Jeffrey Epstein for the first time, he was incredibly suspicious because Eric Weinstein knows billionaires. He's friends and has relationships with Peter Thiel, who is a billionaire that founded PayPal, Palantir, and a range of other companies. And 
Eric notes that this was a very suspicious man, Epstein, whom didn't act in the conventional way that he would associate with someone who was in investment banking and made a fortune. Uh, so th there was already some suspicious uh, activity going on. So let's just take a look at some, some of this clip, because this was very interesting regarding Jeffrey Epstein, what Eric Weinstein knows about this story. All right, there is some glass wall that is preventing the Epstein story from being discussed properly. Everyone's interested in it, the questions are basic, and there's a guaranteed story to write. Simply ask the most basic questions of the officials involved and print whatever comes back. Whatever it is, there's no possibility of an uninteresting answer to the central questions. And yet, the central questions are not asked. And what are those central questions? The first one is very simple. You have to ask every government that might be involved, was Jeffrey Epstein known to be attached to any intelligence agency anywhere in the world? Then you have to ask, were his file activities known to the intelligence agencies? And was there any kind of tacit approval or understanding? Or is there a categorical denial that such techniques may never be used? Now, we have not recorded the no comments or we don't discuss sources and methods. That's typical in these stories where you should be able to say, can I at least get a statement that we would never condone activities to be used for intelligence gathering purposes. All right. The next question, Jeffrey Epstein was supposed to be a hedge fund manager of some kind, and he had extensive offices at a place called Villard house, the former, uh, Helmsley palace. This trophy building is a place that I myself dropped off materials for Jeffrey Epstein to review in connection to a hedge fund matter. What I want to know is where are the trading records from Villard house? It would be almost impossible to go back in time and fake trading records for a billion dollar plus hedge fund. And yet nobody seems to have ever recorded a trade with Jeffrey Epstein. We don't know where he did prime brokerage. There are no financial records that explain his fortune. Are those publicly available or should those be publicly available? I don't even care about that. Where are the records? If, if there are no records, I mean, presumably this person paid taxes. Presumably this person had to make SEC filings. I don't know. But the key issue is I don't think there was a hedge fund. When I met Jeffrey Epstein, uh, which might have been something like 2002 before he was uh, charged with sex crime violations in Florida, um, I did not believe that Jeffrey Epstein was a hedge fund manager. And I, in fact, called my uh, wife at the time and I said, this man appears to be a construct. And she said, what do you mean by a construct? And I said, it, it's like they've hired an actor to play a hedge fund manager. But this person didn't behave like uh, the super rich normally behave. He didn't behave like a hedge fund manager behaved. He didn't have any of the substance that you would normally associate with people of that class. I'm not saying he wasn't smart, but he was glib and he lived essentially like he was Gatsby. I only met him once. Uh, it was probably for about an hour or so. Um, but he was an absolutely terrifying person to encounter. It would be surprising to me if I was alone in that I immediately had the suspicion that I was looking at somebody who had been constructed rather than something that had organically arisen within the financial community. Further questions that need to be asked. Where was Ghislaine Maxwell's passport last cited? Assume that she has one or more passports and assume that governments record when passports go through a border point. Okay. We should at least be able to ascertain where was the last point where her passports, or at least one of her passports, were officially seen. 
I don't know of anybody asking this question. Can we not call up Interpol? Is there no sense in which we can guess where she was last located? Where, what was the last social event in which she was recorded? We don't seem to know anything about this person. Why are we not talking to Les Wexner? I don't understand why these people are not being interviewed or uh, deposed. We have a very strange situation. And in all of these cases, a simple declaration of no comment would be a newsworthy story. I mean, I'm hopeful. I mean, investigative journalism does take time. I'm hopeful that You've there are. You've got to be kidding. I, I really, I'm going to shut you down on this. It's been over six months. This doesn't take that long to get a no comment from the CIA. I'm not the talking NSA about the no State comment. Department. I'm not talking about the no comment. I'm, my point was going to be, I, given, given the amount of interest in the Epstein story, there must be some investigative journalists working on it. I completely agree with your points about the no comments. Like that, 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 not that is not of, being... I'm sorry. It's not a question of some investigative journalist. We, we tripped over some enormous structure. We don't know what this structure was. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. The, the fortune that I think I've seen referenced is something like $600 million. Who with $600 million would make these purchases? You know, multiple jet aircrafts, uh, private islands, um, you know, a townhouse uh, on 71st Street in Manhattan, a huge comp complex uh, in the New Mexico desert uh, property in Paris. It would appear that most of this was intended for display. I mean, in other words, the behavior patterns of Jeffrey Epstein suggest an 11 figure fortune. Uh, maybe high 11 figure fortune. This person appears to be uh, somewhere in the nine figures. That's two orders of magnitude off. Now, I know that very rich is very rich to many people, but, you know, as a person of much, much smaller means, I can tell you that if you hang around with people who are in this stratosphere, they behave very differently depending upon which order of magnitude they're at. And Jeffrey Epstein was at the wrong order of magnitude. He was behaving like a high 11-figure type guy, maybe, with what appears to be a nine-figure fortune. Yeah, I mean, my, my, my point on this is that I don't, I don't know where the media interest is. Um, and, it, it, and it doesn't add up that there wouldn't be media interest given the, the, the huge desire for the story that you can kind of see every time you log on. Anything, any scrap is interesting to everybody. Yeah, especially given that we already know the links to someone like Prince Andrew, the British royal family. This is one of the biggest, potentially one of the biggest stories let's talk about, that has ever, has ever happened. Well, let's talk about the interview with Prince Andrew. What was that? Now, I cannot believe my ears when very intelligent people watch that interview in its entirety and then say, well, he was unprepared or uh, it was a mistake to grant that interview. I think that that's not true. I think we have no idea what that rep interview represented. I think that that interview was so bizarre and so clearly, it was almost like he was trolling the media who was asking him questions. Was he forced to give an interview and he decided that he would rather go down with the ship and give the world's worst interview? Was he realizing that he was completely trapped and that uh, his best strategy was to make fun of the entire process? Um, by giving answers that were so implausible that no child would ever believe them? 
Whatever that interview was, it was one of the most remarkable pieces of footage anybody has ever seen on television, bar none. To not be talking about this and say, we do not know what that interview represented. What was a member of the British royal family, the Queen's son, doing, giving that interview? Was it in Buckingham Palace? Yes, I think it was. It was an insane event that happened where nobody came to a conclusion that makes that make any sense. I'd rather leave the problem open. Who was forced to do what by whom that that interview would ever be granted? Yeah, I can remember when it was first announced, having a sort of double take of like, this is not a good, this is not going to go well. And then the actual interview happened. Like I think it went brilliantly Maybe. for us. For us. Right? It was effectively an admission that something is so off in the world, something that's so completely bizarre, that that thing would be produced. That was some sort of internal conflict. I don't know whether it was between the queen and her son or the intelligence services, or I don't know what, but it was, it was sort of the sense that you have like almost a hostage video where the person has to behave so bizarrely as to send a message. And the message I got is, I'm going to lie. I'm going to fabricate. I'm going to say preposterous things in an effort to just put this to bed in the worst possible way. Like you want, you now all know never to ask me questions about this because I'm simply going to say the most outrageous and insane things that I can possibly think of. I mean, as I said, I, it, it didn't twig at the beginning. It, it sounded like a terrible idea, but then I guess I rationalized it by thinking he's clearly got no self-awareness. Maybe he did think that he could clear his name. Nobody's that dumb, David. Those questions were entirely expected and the answers, if, if you look at the amount of twinkle in the eye, I mean, he's clearly not a happy man, but he's saying absolutely ludicrous and preposterous things. I think that the effect is exactly the reverse. If I had to speculate, and I really don't want to, I would say that this, this interview was given because an amount of pressure was put on a human being who decided that his life was effectively over in most senses. And this is the way he chose to go out effectively making fun of the entire process. Yeah, but what's really interesting is I'm, I'm sort of aware, for example, the Royal Television Society Awards were two nights ago, the Journalism Awards, and the Prince Andrew interview won Scoop of the Year and Interview of the Year. So it's kind of been rationalized, and I've, and I've seen people talk about how they got the interview. They, the Newsnight producer was trying hard and was on Buckingham Palace like, which is kind of ludicrous, the idea that it was just the, the um, dedication of the journalist keep continuing to ask for an interview that made Prince Andrew say, okay, you've asked me so many times. I mean, that in itself is kind of a ludicrous narrative, but it is a narrative that, that the mainstream, I've seen the mainstream media kind of um, integrate that whole thing into, wow, this is an amazing scoop. You were dedicated and you got the story, which is, which is kind of ludicrous, the idea that, um, so, you see what I'm what I'm saying? I really don't. I mean, I'm so, I'm so. What I'm saying is that it's already been rationalised within the mainstream media. The reason that that interview happened was because they were so dedicated and they pursued Prince Andrew and they asked Buckingham Palace and eventually they they conceded and they gave the interview, which is kind of ludicrous. I'm saying it's ludicrous. Well, it is ludicrous. Yeah. But I guess I mean my expectation is is that even if uh, the UK is no longer 
the world power it once was, I, I presume you still have adults with IQs over 70. How could you possibly rationalize such a thing? I mean, we used to turn to you guys uh, for intelligence and sophistication. This seems the height of folly. If I had to say this is much closer to a hostage video where the hostage is attempting to send a message that is clearly not the ostensible message on video. The really difficult part of the story, David, is, is that almost certainly we're talking about some kind of operation that was being run with knowledge of governments that may have involved pedophilia and was not shut down. And what I can't understand is um, what is it that is keeping some reporter from simply asking the questions that are on everybody's mind? Was this person connected to the intelligence services? Where was Ghislaine Maxwell's passport last seen? Why are we not talking to Les Wexner? Where are the trading records? What is the source of the fortune? It seems to me very clear that we have a missing fortune of Robert Maxwell and an unexplained fortune of Jeffrey Epstein. Are those the same fortune? Who's asking these questions? Did everybody go to sleep when they taught journalism in school? I just don't understand. I guess my sort of disconnect as well is this sense of, I worked in Channel 4 News, they had an investigative unit. These were the kind of bread and butter questions. They pushed really hard, for example, on the phone hacking scandal in the UK, the, the Murdoch Papers phone hacking scandal that also involved networks of power, it involved uh, shady deals, it involved corruption, and they, they pursued that quite intensely. I, I, I'm, I'm feeling this sense of dislocation because I agree with you, there are these questions that are not being asked, and I find it difficult to understand why that is, knowing that there are, knowing the, the public interest and, know, and knowing the, that, that these questions have been asked in the past. Let me tell you what happened. People started asking those questions and they stopped. And that's what idea suppression is all about. We don't have the resources to pursue that right now. Well, actually, I'm concerned that this is starting to reek of conspiracy theory. Uh, I think given the delicacies of the situation, I'm going to need a lot more evidence before I give this thing the go ahead. These are the sorts of things that you say when you're trying to shut down a line of inquiry. And my guess is, is that whatever the story is, it represents some very powerful structure that we tripped over. And I tripped over that structure in 2002. And I was convinced at the time before there was any knowledge about this Florida situation um, that this was constructed. I mean, we have a very famous case of a guy named Ellie Cohn, who was fitted with a backstory and became a playboy uh, in Damascus and held orgies, if I understand correctly, where he collected information and leverage against people in the Syrian government. If you take that situation, this looks remarkably similar. We've got a guy who was apparently a math teacher at a private high school, and the next thing we know, uh, he's avoided jail in some sort of financial scandal, and he suddenly set up as a mystery financier um, with connections to absolutely everyone in the top echelons of power. Something doesn't smell right about the story, given that nobody appears to have ever traded currencies with a guy who was apparently moving billions as a currency trader. So Whitney Webb, I want to share some of her revelations in which were incredibly interesting regarding Jeffrey Epstein. And she has, for many years now, been writing about Epstein in detail, highlighting the power dynamics, the way money status operates within today's society. And she's basically exposed many interesting revelations regarding his islands, 
uh, strange companies in which were involved within a range of absurd activities, to put it bluntly, as we'll see uh, within one second. According to this tweet and article, shocking New Epstein Papers reveals a creepy targeting of children. For medical experiments, Whitney Webb is back to discuss the new revelations of Jeffrey Epstein. Let's see. Hey, great to be here. So this is a crazy story because, so we, we know about the sex trafficking in 2007. Then after he gets out, he turns his attention to the U.S. Virgin Islands and starts a new company, which I don't think many Americans have any idea about this part of the story. And we're just now starting to learn more and more about this. Can you take us through sort of the high level first, and then we'll dive into the nitty gritty, disgusting details? Sure. So the, the company you're talking about here is called Southern Trust, and he had a few other companies tied up with it, including a bank um, that were based on the Virgin Islands after he was arrested for sex trafficking in Palm Beach. And so after that happened, he seemed, like you said, to have directed his attention more to the Virgin Islands. And so this company in, in particular, Southern Trust, was created in 2012. And it describes itself as offering cutting-edge consulting services and uh, as a DNA data mining firm uh, that was uh, trying to find clients specifically among big banks and big pharma. It described itself as sort of a biomedical Google that was trying to uh, use people's genetic sequencing to determine what drugs would work best on them and all sorts of uh, odd things and even people in, in the testimony that he gave to this Eco Economic Development Commission in the Virgin Islands were, uh, you know, very awestruck, I guess you could say, by how, you know, unusual uh, the company was, was framed as being and what its objectives essentially were. And what's uh, particularly important is that in a lawsuit um, that was filed by Denise George, who is the same attorney general of the Virgin Islands that was fired after filing the Epstein J.P. Morgan case, she had another case targeting Epstein a few years prior. Um, that lawsuit and also a lawsuit filed by the New York Times referred to Southern Trust as being a key part of Jeffrey Epstein's criminal activities. But as I said earlier, it was founded in 2012. So this is well after he was busted for sex trafficking the first time and it was not a part of what he was charged with in 2019. So it seems like the Virgin Islands was really the only entity interested in going after him uh, for this particular company, which, uh, as, as we've mentioned, was based there. So what's interesting is if you look at the testimony, it doesn't explicitly talk about children, but in his testimony to this commission, he says what he wants to do is essentially uh, engage children early on to train them in programming and to run these artificial intelligence servers that are going to power um, these algorithms. And so the way he apparently did that was by uh, funding a slew of initiatives uh, targeting youth in the Virgin Islands, specifically mentally ill youth uh, and underprivileged and poor children. And a lot of the um, those activities are eerily similar to the same ways that he recruited minors, underage girls, uh, in the United States, targeting underprivileged, economically underprivileged uh, teenage girls and uh, gifted children in, in music and the arts. And uh, there's been no uh, interest really in looking into the story among mainstream media because why would someone, a known pedophile, uh, be engaged in this type of activity? And we know now from the recent Wall Street Journal revelations that uh, banks, prominent banks like the Edmund de Rothschild Group, uh, was giving Southern Trust millions and millions of dollars in contracts, um, and it's it's just a very um, 
disturbing and overlooked story and might shed some light on why the U.S. Virgin Islands, unlike a lot of uh, um, you know, uh, jurisdictions in the U.S. are interested in going after a lot of the powerful people that enabled Epstein, particularly billionaires and some of these big banks. It's crazy. It's truly disturbing. I mean, absolutely disturbing. It sounds like something out of a, like, you know, the, like a Bond villain. Like if you were to write this as part of a movie, people would say, no, this is ridiculous. You're going to have a billionaire is going to go to the Virgin Islands. He's going to seek out children in order to do biomedical research, implanting things in their brains. Yeah. And even in his testimony, I've gone through these documents that you've sent over, you know, he talks about autistic children specifically. I think like a, a quarter of them were autistic as well. And, um, and, did looking any of the for parents kids on the spectrum? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So looking specifically for kids on the spectrum, did you get any insights into why he was doing that? Um, I think maybe what he was looking for were, you know, um, I, I think people are probably familiar with the sort of savant characteristics of some autistic people, and mm -hmm. he may have been looking for. Um, children and teens that sort of had those um, unusual abilities, uh, but it's definitely very disturbing. And something he talks about in his testimony of this Virgin Island Commission is um, the idea of how he uh, aggressively wants to genetically sequence the islander population because it's uh, such an isolated community, and then talks about how uh, those gene, um, that genetic information can be used to determine how to educate these children that he wants to recruit to ostensibly work for his company in coding and, and programming. But again, as I mentioned earlier, he's targeting specifically underprivileged children um, which is, is very disturbing in light of the similarities uh, between that and what he was doing uh, as part of his sex trafficking operation with Ghislaine Maxwell. The major point in which I want to note here is that we live within a post-truth world. And what we've seen with the Epstein scandal, with the Iraq war, with a range of other scandals, namely COVID, climate change, so on and so forth, is just huge level of distrust within mainstream media, and for good reason. The interesting thing is, is people such as Tucker Carlson, who predicted this, they were speaking out in regards to Epstein, and they noted the scandalous nature of his activities and the mysterious supposed murder in which occurred, in which many people dispute majorly for good reason. But Tucker was labelled as a radical. Many other people who spoke out were labelled as a radical. We cannot do this, people. We must participate in responsible conspiracy theorising. We must be open towards differing opinions. And we must have the ability to change our minds. We must understand that perhaps we are wrong with our current views. And this is how society moves forward. Free speech, discussion, debate, criticism, conjectures, understanding one another, and not just instantaneously labelling one as a conspiracy, th conspiracy theorist as occurred within the case of this Jeffrey Epstein story. Sometimes the truth it, it, it is just crazier than fiction, I guess you could say. Sometimes the truth is so crazy that many people don't instantaneously believe it. But if we're open, if we have the capabilities to discuss, debate, then we can expose the fraudulent, corrupt nature of many things within our society. And this is why, for example, the EU's disinformation code, which is coming up and seemingly into force within 2024, upon all social media platforms, is raising concerns. Who knows what the truth is? What is the truth? Do we know? Isn't free speech, speculation, theorization, debate and discussion, isn't this fundamental towards coming to the truth. The idea of having a ministry of truth whom can decide what is and what is truth is dangerous. I believe this notion of the disinformation board fundamentally shall lead towards the protection of the leads and the inability to expose and hold those in power to account. 
if we can't theorize or have unpopular or controversial views about the world, then we are going to enforce an echo chamber upon oneself. And this is really the danger. As I've said many times, we don't know who was on that list. Why don't we know who was on that list? Just because rich and powerful people are likely on that list and one was definitely involved within the Epstein case. Surely we, the peasants of the world, we should have the capabilities to understand this, to know who was on the list, to know who was involved within this illegality. And this really shows you the unfortunate truth of the world, namely the fact that the rich and the powerful, they can get away with murder, quite literally. <laughs> and meanwhile, don't forget Julian Assange, who has been jailed for exposing war crimes and corruption and the lies of government. He is in jail. He's in jail for corruption, for speaking out, for finding the truth. Whereas people such as Epstein, when there is a case, when there is a list, this is not exposed. Nobody's held to account. It's unfair. All of this corruption is a sign of the times, in my opinion, and I've noted this many times. Similarly analogous to the corruption of the 15th to 16th century church during the agricultural period. The same is true today when it comes to the dynamics of power and how they're changing and how the institutions of our day, namely the government and the mainstream media, are going to fail in light of this new technological change and dynamic change in which is occurring throughout society. The book The Sovereign Individual by William Rees Mogg discusses the 15th century church and the corruption in great detail, and they argued that the corruption was a major factor of the church, which led towards the Protestant Reformation. Davison and Rees Mogg begin by discussing the church's role in medieval society, and they argued that the church was the most powerful institution in Europe at the time, and that it had a monopoly on education, law, and morality. The church also controlled vast amounts of wealth, which it used to build churches, monasteries, and other religious institutions. But Davidson and Rees Mogg argued that the church's power and wealth also led towards corruption. They cited examples of the church's officials who were more interested in enriching themselves than in serving God. And they also discussed the church's indulgences, which were essentially a way for people to buy their way into heaven. And Davison and Rees-Mogg note within their writings that the church's corruption became increasingly evident in the 15th century. They argue that the church's corruption led towards a loss of faith among many people, citing the example of Martin Luther, who was a German monk, and he was deeply troubled by the church's corruption. He eventually broke out with the church and started the Protestant Reformation. The main point that I'm making is that this reformation, this corruption of the 15th century church, is analogous to what we see within the current date. This had a profound effect upon the development of democracy and human rights. In terms of the comparison to the 15th century church and the government media today, they believe and conclude within their writings that this corruption we saw in the past is a sign of the times. It is an example and it is an indication that the institutions of today are failing majorly. As I noted, the church in the 15th century was responsible for agricultural for development, for architecture, it was a meeting point for commerce, so on and so forth. It was, it was very powerful and analogous to governments today. However, post the Dark Ages during this medieval period, change started to occur. This was the start of the Industrial Age, in which the dynamics of society changed majorly. New technologies such as the printing press were introduced, leading towards the diminishing necessity for the church to act as the sole disseminator of information and education. Instead, now the printing press could do this. The mass production of books ended the church's monopoly on scripture and information and the wider book availability increased literacy, and more people could contribute to thought on important subjects, and it threatened the church's monopoly on theology and information. The point being, the important point I want to make here, is that this important change which happened 500 years ago is going to happen again. The information revolution is going to destroy the monopoly power held by the nation, state, and the media, just as the gunpowder revolution destroyed the church's monopoly 
Be warned, the shift towards the industrial age, as was present within the 15th century church, was not a smooth transition. The church hung on to tyranny, power, corruption was strife. The same is happening today within the media, within the government. It's a sign of the times that the institutions of the day are failing. Corruption was strife, the church hung on to tyranny in order to regain power. Laws supposedly imposed by God were arbitrarily being created in order to retain power. And the same is happening now. The corruption, the lies, the tyranny, it is all a sign of the time. This is the sign of the changing dynamics of society towards the age of information, an age characterized by more sovereignty to the individual thanks to the cyberspace. But this shift shall not be easy, instead the opposite. Just like the medieval church, the government and institutions shall cling on to power, uphold tyranny, all in an attempt to regain power. This story of Epstein is just the surface, and there's still so many unanswered questions as to if he was some sort of government informant collecting information upon elites around the world, or perhaps if he was solely a paedophilic billionaire who lied his way to the top. It's yet unknown as to these important details. But I think the most important point is the corruption of the media, the corruption of the government, the corruption of many institutions of the day, which are no longer focused upon truth. They're no longer focused upon providing their role within society, but instead it seems like there's an overwhelming consensus that it seems like these institutions are instead focused upon covering for the elites, as we saw within the case of J.P. Morgan, it seems, and Epstein. So what do you think? This is a sign of the times, I believe, the corruption is a sign of the times of the information age of more sovereignty to the individual, and you can see this now most evidently within the case of media, which nobody trusts mainstream media anymore, but instead the trust is with the one-to-one -one audience building, as you can see within the case of broad podcasting, such as Joe Rogan, Russell Brand, Brent Shapiro, so on and so forth. This is the future. Be happy, be optimistic. We're going to get to the truth of this. Be happy, be optimistic. This is the start of something great. There are many issues we need to solve, but we can do it together. So let me know your thoughts. Thank you so much for being here. It means the world, and I'll see you very soon.